Our New Testament lesson comes from Luke chapter 15, where we find three famous stories from the Lord Jesus. And then we will also read, as we have been throughout this series, the text from Matthew chapter 11. So let's hear God's word once again. Luke 15. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country to go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, Give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am, not, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up. And went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, 
All these years, I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. When this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And then let me invite you to perhaps close your eyes, take a deep breath, maybe even open your hands, and hear these words straight from the mouth of our Lord Jesus as they come to you in the power of the Spirit. Jesus says to you, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Why feast? What even is a feast? And what makes a feast something that's worth keeping? Another question might be, what ruins a feast? What makes a feast no longer worth keeping? These are questions maybe that arise even from our readings this morning. But I bet you've never asked those questions about feasting in church on the church's highest and holiest feast day, Easter, right? It's not a day where we question what feasting really is and why we should be doing it. But today we conclude this seven-week Lenten series on what we're calling the Disciplines of Discipleship, and we conclude it with an Easter meditation on the discipline of feasting, the discipline of feasting. So throughout the centuries, Christians pretty naturally have collected heroes, heroes of the faith. Uh, The problem, though, is that Church history has been going on for 2,000 and some years, and there are only 365 and one quarter days in every calendar year, right? So that means that the calendar fills up pretty quickly with saints' festival days. Every saint, if every saint was equally significant, then the calendar would be completely full, maybe double and triple full, and None of us would ever work a day in our lives. We would just spend the whole time feasting, celebrating the heroes of our faith. Now, I'm a pastor. I love being in church, and I love to eat. But even somebody like me, that sounds like a lot of feasting, right? Is there, is there something else? Is That's a bit much. Eventually, with a calendar full of feasts, Christians decided that they needed some clarity on, like, you know, when do we when do we have to come to church, right? Like, when do we have to keep these feasts? Which of these feasts are like the ones we have to keep, was the question. And the answer came back from the church, class, which ones? Christmas and Easter, exactly, right? If you weren't saying it, you were thinking it, right? And so Christians thought, oh, I can do that, Christmas and Easter, two feasts, I'll make sure to be there on those days. Now, the point, of course, of all these 
holy feasts and all these holy fasts that are in the church calendar. The point of them is to, is to suffuse our lives with a sort of Christian awareness, right? So that the reality of God is on our minds and hopefully on our hearts on a normal Tuesday afternoon throughout the year. But the problem, of course, is since we're human, often then we just, instead of going through the normal everyday motions, we just go through the religious motions without ever really fasting, without really even feasting, and without ever really entering in with our bodies and with our spirits to what Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, plans to do with us in our everyday lives. But nevertheless, Paul says, get rid of the old yeast so that you may be new and an unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the feast. We're called to keep the feast. What does it mean to keep the feast? And what does it have to do with Easter? Well, what Reto read from Exodus gives us a little bit of help, right? Israel is saved from their bondage in Egypt. And in order to commemorate that salvation event, the Exodus, uh, God calls for an annual feast. But this is a strange feast, and it's got some pretty strange instructions. We read them all, right? A couple of them. The Israelites must celebrate the Passover feast with their sandals on. With their sandals on. I lived in Korea for three years, and Koreans would be like, with your shoes on? Like, indoors? That doesn't work, right? It's a little strange even for us. And not only with their sandals on, but with their cloaks tucked into their belts. With their staffs in their hands. They have to eat unleavened bread because, why? Because there was no time to bake bread that, that had time for the yeast to cause the bread to rise. Because it was time to flee from Egypt for freedom. So they take their bread and they eat it sort of with one foot out the door is the picture that we get. And when they celebrate, year after year, they're supposed to celebrate with one foot out the door, as it were. Feasting with a promised land in front of them the whole time. So in America, um, Thanksgiving is the great American feast, right? It's, it's kind of like first on our list. Easter might be like third in our list of feasts. On Thanksgiving, Americans do the opposite of what the Israelites did in Passover, right? Uh, we take our sandals off. We eat everything in sight without paying attention to what it is, where it came from, how much leaven it has in it. We unbuckle our belts. Maybe even after dinner, we have to open the, the top of our, uh, of our blue jeans just to give us room for dessert later <laughs> and to make us comfortable for when we just flop out on the sofa and watch American football, something that you all don't know anything about. It's probably best. For Americans, the work is all behind us, right? The harvest is in, and now we're here to vegetate. This is a day of leisure for us. And in a sense, the idea is kind of like, we're thankful, but we've earned it. And so we're going to 
vegetate. We're going to flop out. But the Passover feast is a feast for a people who are on the move with work ahead of them. See, God has done all of the miraculous work to save them, judging the gods of Israel and judging Pharaoh with the plagues. And now he's delivered them. And now they feast and they are going to, in the energy of that feast, they are going to get to work. Not under the eye of Egyptian taskmasters this time, but under the smile of a loving and saving father who's adopted them for freedom. So American salvation is freedom from discipline, from constraints, from kings across the ocean. But Israelite and Christian salvation is freedom to come out from under the domination of Pharaoh, to come out from under the dominion of our sin, and to come under instead the nurture and gracious admonition of the Lord. So our feasting is a celebration of the radical change in status that we have from forgotten slaves to firstborn sons. And then we have these famous stories in Luke 15 from the Lord Jesus. And you'll notice, did you, that each of these three stories also ends, like the Exodus story, in what? In a feast. In a feast. And the first thing we need to notice is that these three stories of Jesus are actually provoked by kind of a scandal. Jesus is always getting himself into little scandals. Look at verses 1 and 2. Jesus thought that it was sinners that needed to be forgiven and saved and set apart. And this was a scandal to the super spiritual, rigorously religious elders of his day. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Can you hear the contempt in their voice as they say that? The scandal is that Jesus welcomes really lost people to live and to work alongside of him. In other words, to become his disciples. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were scandalized that Jesus saw super sinners not just as people that could be forgiven, but people that could be set apart and reserved and put in his service, actually be useful for the newly founded, renewed kingdom of God. How can somebody whose life is such a mess be a candidate, not just for forgiveness, but for saintliness, for set-apartness? How stupid, the religious leaders thought. What is he going to do next? Give them a special day on the calendar? And make everyone feast because of them? And so Jesus gets to his storytelling in response. I love Jesus. He never gives like a direct answer. He's, right. He's like, let me tell you a story, or three. And he tells these three stories. First story. Pretend one of you so-called shepherds of Israel is like a literal shepherd, actual shepherd with a hundred sheep. One of them goes missing. What do you do? You go and you find it. When you find it, you come home with the runaway sheep up on your shoulders. You come home with a smile on your face. You dial up your friends and you say, I found my lost sheep. Let's have ourselves a feast. Second story. There's a woman with 10 silver coins. She loses one. 
She searches high and low with her oil lamp in one hand, her broom in the other hand. She finds that stupid coin. How did it get there behind that? Who cares? I found it. And she calls her friends and she throws a feast. Third story. There's a man with two sons. One goes off and gets himself really, really lost. When the lost son finally comes home, the father throws a great feast. Even though that son has squandered half his possessions, made his family name a mockery, and essentially wished that his father was dead. Three stories, three feasts. Three stories that essentially say to these religious elites of that day, do you want to be a super spiritual person? Like a real authentic man of God, woman of God? Well, you'd better learn to feast. You'd better learn to feast because the kingdom of God is full of feasting. You'd better get used to the celebration that always erupts in the kingdom of God when people that you call sinners are saved by grace and are set apart for great works of truth and goodness and beauty. These religious guys didn't want to work in the kingdom of God side by side next to prostitutes and tax collectors. Ew. The older brother didn't want to work another day in the fields next to his prodigal younger brother. And so they refused to feast. But when Jesus comes and he brings his father's kingdom in his incarnation, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, in his ascension to the throne, he brings with him not just the forgiveness of sins, but the promise of the renewal of all things. And with each little bit of renewal, his disciples gather together, young and old, rich and poor, sinners and saints, to do what? To feast and to celebrate that little bit of renewal. 500 years ago, Martin Luther said scandalously that the whole of a real human life is a life of ongoing, constant repentance. Realizing what is real and then returning by the invitation of God's kindness and grace back to reality. That's what repentance is. You see, Jesus stays with super sinners a lot longer than we're willing to stay with them, doesn't he? Because Jesus is much more patient with the process of ongoing repentance and renewal than we are. And each time that there's one more turn towards the truth and the goodness and the beauty of God's kingdom in the heart and in the life of a human being, Jesus says heaven erupts with laughter and joy and cheering. Why don't you, he says to these religious leaders. Each tiny turning, Jesus is saying to us, is a little resurrection, a little repeat of the morning that Jesus rose from the grave, a little rolling away of the stone so that more life can get out into the new world, a little glimpse of Easter glory. Every lost sheep Every lost coin, every lost son who is found is marked then by many, many repentances along the way. 
And each repentance is led, Paul tells us, by a fresh kindness of God. And bit by bit, these always freshly found people, that's all we ever are, is always freshly found people. We grow into little replicas of the resurrected Jesus. And every little bit of growth in grace calls for a feast. It's happening in heaven. If we don't like feasting, Jesus is saying, we're really going to hate heaven. If we don't like seeing one another change from one degree of glory to the next, with small but certain signs of resurrection in our lives, then we're really going to be bothered by the joy of heaven. Because that joy is serious business, and that feast does not stop. And so to make sure that we don't end up hating heaven, to make sure that we are people who long and groan and wait eagerly for the full flowering of redemption that Easter begins, the full realization of all that Easter entails, the call here is for us to enter with Jesus into this discipline of his discipleship, feasting. And so this means practically for us that instead of looking around for signs that people are prone to fall and to fail, of course they are. Of course you and I are. But instead of waiting for that and pointing our fingers when they inevitably do, a feasting people gathered around Jesus is on the lookout for little growths in grace, for little calls to celebrate. Last week we saw that fasting is the natural response to the destruction of truth and goodness and beauty in God's world. But feasting is the natural response to the recovery, the resurrection recovery of truth, goodness, and beauty in God's world, especially in the life of someone whose heart is bit by bit opening up by God's grace, whose life is bit by bit beginning to flower like those flowering crosses that they sometimes put up on Easter morning to flower with the fruit of God's kindness that has led them once again to deep, true repentance. In the end, every true and lasting fruit of repentance flows from where? It flows from the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus came to take on all of our brokenness and to restore us to all of the beauty for which we were made. He took our sin and brokenness all the way to the cross and then down into the tomb. And he brought our broken and dead humanity to life and took it back up with him out of the tomb at Easter. And the life that we now live, we live how? By faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. The life we now live by faith is a life of bit by bit repentance and flowering of the beauty for which we were made, of the truth that we were meant to tell, of the goodness that we were meant to show. And with every little bit of growth in his grace, fueled by the sheer power of the resurrection and the kindness of the smile of Christ, what happens to you, what happens to me? We're made just a little bit more glorious, a little bit more like Jesus rose from the dead.
I've said it a lot of times, lost count now, but Irenaeus says that the glory of God is a human being fully alive. The glory of God is a human being fully alive. Jesus, once dead, is now fully alive. The first human being that has ever really been fully alive. And with each new sign of resurrection life, we look around at one another and we see in each other's new lives, new creation lives, we see in each other's lives just a little sign of that resurrection and all of its emerging fruit, and we feast. We feast. All our feasts are signs that one day, every sign of death, pain and lonesomeness and regret and shame and guilt and tears and war and injustice and contempt and poverty, all of those signs of death will one day in Christ die. And so that means that every feast that we discipline ourselves to celebrate is a laugh in the face of evil, a proclamation that in the resurrection of Jesus, lost coins can be found. Lost sheep will be found and put on the shoulder of the good shepherd. Lost sons don't have to stay in a distant land, but they're welcome home, even after squandering their lives. Every feast, friends, get this, every feast freaks out the forces of evil and reminds them that their days are numbered, that their lies will be trumped finally by truth, that their destruction that they wreak will be destroyed by beauty, that their attempts to turn all of us against one another and even against the creation itself will be obliterated one day. We fast because the world is broken, but we feast because brokenness itself in Christ's resurrection will be bent into resurrection beauty. Why? Because Jesus, the Redeemer, does just that kind of thing. Do you feel like a lost coin? Feel like a lost sheep, a lost son? Well, Jesus would say you're a lot closer to the kingdom than the self-righteous, self-reliant religious leaders or the arrogant older brothers. So rejoice. But even if you're an arrogant older brother, a self-righteous religious person, the good news is that you don't have to be. You too can be found by Jesus Christ. All of us can. And all of us just have to learn that we're lost coins and lost sheep and lost daughters and sons. And if we'll just trust in the one who seeks and who finds and who rescues and who restores what is lost and then who calls all of his friends in heaven and on earth to feast with him in Eastern celebration. Then all things can be made new, starting with our hearts. Friends, Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. So let us keep the feast. Heavenly Father, may the the words from my mouth, may the meditations in each of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Fill us with resurrection hope for the life of the world to come, which begins the moment you find us in our lostness and call your friends to feast. We pray in Christ's name, amen.